0: Welcome back to the program. It was actually Winston Churchill, not Rahm Emanuel, who said that we should never let a serious crisis go to waste. A crisis often creates a great opportunity to face, to talk about, and even sometimes to act on issues that had been previously frozen. Or as Donald Rumsfeld once inarticulately put it, sometimes the only solution to an unsolvable problem is to create a bigger problem. But often these problems come out of the blue in life and in business. And when they do, When those pivotal moments happen, it's the culture, the people, the mission, in short, the underpinnings of the organization itself that has to become the survival mechanism and the jumping-off point for the future. So how might we prep for these disasters the same as we do for physical disasters? How do we build organizations for the stress of those critical moments? We're going to talk about those moments, the moments you can't ignore, with our guests Malachi O'Connor and Barry Dornfeld, Malachi O'Connor is vice president and principal at CIFAR, a management consulting firm specializing in strategy and organizational development. He holds a Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania and has spoken about leading change to chief executive audiences worldwide. Barry Dornfeld is a principal at CIFAR, an anthropologist and documentary filmmaker with a Ph.D. in communications. It is my pleasure to welcome Malachi O'Connor and Barry Dornfeld here to talk about the moment you can't ignore – Why Big Trouble Leads to a Great Future. Malachi, Barry, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: Great to have you here. I want to talk first about this idea that in many cases, particularly in in organizations that have been around a while, companies large and small, that sometimes the mission, the purpose, the very reason for their being gets lost. Malachi, talk about that.
1: Well, I think what we've discovered, uh, Jeff, is that Over time, uh, often over generations, the very history of success that a business or a company, for-profit or non-profit creates, uh, is built on uh, a set of agreements that people made about how work gets done, decisions get made, information gets shared, budgeting happens, how people work together, to accomplish whatever tasks they're facing, and what happens over time is those become tacit and uh, pretty much uh, understood, but not really tested. And often, uh, people learn them by actually breaking the rules uh, because they're unspoken over time. And then often, come into play, like they are in healthcare, for example. Today, uh, the uh, the forces at play demand a new set of working agreements, a different approach to patient safety, for example, while more teamwork rather than the physician or the administrative leader as the captain of the ship. And what usually happens is because these prior agreements have been tacit, when a new initiative is launched or a change effort uh, uh, comes into play, the new agreements really bump right into the old tacit agreements. But because they're tacit, often an eruption occurs somewhere in the organization that's sometimes not unlike uh you know, plate tectonic shifts that uh, create volcanic or earthquake kinds of kind size eruptions. And uh, you know, we found that happen in all sorts of industries, whether it's in healthcare or higher education or software development, you name it.
0: And Barry, talk a little bit about it from the point of view of the culture of an organization, because we often hear and understand how difficult it is to change the culture of a company, how immutable it is in some cases, but oftentimes that's only true in bad times. It's not always assured that the culture will protect the organization when these critical moments come.
2: Right. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right, Jeff. And and you know, there's a lot of writing, a lot of talk about culture and organizations and it's a it's a complex subject, it's a little hard to get your fingers around but leaders know that it matters. They don't often know how to find it (laughs) and how to change it. And some of the ways that they change it aren't always effective. So, you know, having a a culture program where you, you know, come up with some slogans and put them up on the walls, you know, sometimes might help a little bit, but we find those tend to be, you know, a little empty. Um, uh, But, but as Mal was saying, there's, uh, any organization has in it some really strong identity issues and uh, deep issues in terms of how people do their work. You know, you think about healthcare, and you have doctors who have. You know, train their whole lives uh, to do what they do. You have uh, people on the business side who have a perspective on the organization and and what's been successful. So, so culture can be very deep in people's identities, deep in how they work, and and really shape you know how the organization um, uh, is successful or not. The question is, if you want to change culture, how do you do it? And uh, uh, and how how do you do it in a way that preserves what's good and changes the things that you think need to be changed, and that's that's where our book focuses: is you know to begin to really uh, look at your culture, to um, take the time. To what you know, as we say, to listen in to really sort of see where the culture is is aligned with the the future that you want to create and where it's not, and then begin to make changes where you think you
0: have to. And Malachi, how much more difficult is it to do this today, in an environment where one things move along so much more quickly, partly because of technology and and simply the speed of business today, coupled with the reality of a much more diverse and multi-generational workplace?
1: Well, there that's about three or four questions uh, <laughs> all in one. Let's see. I would say that, you know, as Peter Drucker is attributed to have said, um, you know, culture eats strategy for lunch, and uh, as many businesses have found, uh, whether it's an org chart or a strategic objective, uh, that can be, you know, like the weather, you know, if you don't like it, wait a minute, because it's going to change rapidly. And uh, so we've actually found and what we discovered is that culture really can be the bedrock an understanding of culture and how it works in organizations can be the bedrock that enables you to move
2: through the
1: kinds of disruptive changes, whether they're technological or otherwise, that occur that cause an industry to change its strategic focus you know uh quite often the uh what the capability that we think is critical for organizations to develop in order to make this work and it cuts a little bit into the intergenerational question is the capability to be able to get stuck and then get unstuck and We think that there's just as much power and energy and useful information in being stuck in the midst of a transition as there is in the necessity to become unstuck and move forward. And in order to get uh, an appreciation and understand what happens when something gets stuck, it often bumps right into the intergenerational questions. You know, that you're, that you're talking about. In a lot of our family business work, for example, and and there's one story that we use in the book, the father of this company that, uh, say was in manufacturing, um, had been very successful, but had held the decisions very closely. And his son, he had appointed, uh, and gradually worked up through the ranks to become a COO. And, uh, but to, you know, up until the time when, uh, they were thinking about what to do next generation wise, and they were talking, he was thinking about selling the company. The son really never knew how many shares he owned. He didn't really understand what his role was. He wasn't involved in any strategic decisions. His father had kept them too closely and his father ended up deciding to sell the company, but the sale went, didn't, didn't go through. It fell apart at the last minute because there were some, they lost a couple of key customers and the, The strategic buyer backed away. And only then did the son and the daughter come forward and say to their father, you know, we've always been interested in taking this to another generation and keeping the company in our family's name. And the father was shocked because he didn't know this because they had never, he thought he had asked, but they had never said anything. And they said, no, you never, you never really asked. You never even let us in on anything and uh so that was a truly unignorable moment in their family and in their business and uh it turned out the father was actually thrilled but also had to change his behavior in order to help that next generation take on more responsibility more authority more accountability in order to move that that family business forward
0: in looking at this barry at these crisis points how How important is it to go back and really try and deconstruct the culture of the company
2: yeah I, we we think that's that's critical to really understand um, you know where you've been successful uh, where you struggled, um, but also to look outside so to look at the environment to look at what's changing i mean in the you know the the case that that mal talked about you know, we often we often find that family businesses have been successful for a long time. But during that time uh the the world might have changed <laughs> you know the the business environment they're in the competitive uh landscape the way that uh you know that that other companies have been successful so um so the the importance is to take stock of where you are to really take a hard look um at the business and at the organization. And to really you know use this this moment um, to to really understand um, you know where where you've been successful, where you're struggling, and then to begin to see and this is kind of an important uh, an important insight that we've had is to to begin to see where inside the organization there might be elements of the future that are already showing up. And we call these found pilots. And uh, and we find this is a really helpful way for organizations to think about change um, because often when organizations are stuck, one of their, their sort of first uh, instincts is to look outside and say, oh, how does Google do this or how does Amazon do this, et cetera. Um, and that, that might be helpful, but we always uh, encourage organizations to look inside as well because what you'll find is that there are almost always – Uh, parts of the organization that are starting to do things in a way that's innovative, that's starting to create a new future, that's starting to gain some success and momentum. Not everybody knows about these found pilots, um, but one of the ways to begin to build on your culture is to find those elements of of innovation that are are part of the culture. Um, They're not uh, born outside. They're born inside the organization and figure out how to learn from them, how to build on them, and how to spread them. And that's one of the seeds of change that we like to look towards.
0: And Malachi, why are companies so reluctant, so afraid to do this? outside of the context of a crisis, of one of those key moments that you can't ignore?
1: That's a very good question. I think I I know part of the answer, but we've been thinking about this for a long time and don't uh, pretend to know the entire answer. But many leaders whom we've worked with um, use the word culture as a kind of code term for there's a mysterious there are mysterious things happening around here that we don't fully understand, and one of the reasons that we wrote the book uh was that because we had we've grown up in this uh studying uh of culture our entire uh adult lives, and it doesn't feel mysterious to us, and so we thought, I wonder if we could take the mystery out of it and Make it a little bit more practical and straightforward, and uh, we try. We've tried mightily to do that with the book, and and to define culture in clear terms that really have to do with how a business works, how it sets up its support structures, how it makes its decisions, um, how it says yes to know some things and no to others, in order to attach culture to the regular, everyday things that leaders have to grapple with. And so we talk much less about um, underlying assumptions and beliefs, although they're very important, and much more about what's actually going on right in front of us and how can a leader pay attention to that and use culture as an asset in order to um, uh, grapple with the question you raised. And in fact, what's interesting is we've discovered that it's not only in times, well, times different of, kinds of crisis, but not only in times of crisis have some of our clients used this to their advantage. And um, one uh, used this to their advantage when they were facing uh, a different kind of crisis, the crisis of rapid growth, <clears throat> which is often just as troubling and problematic as a crisis of <clears throat> trying to figure out how to contain expenses and not, you know, and not dissolve. But I don't think we know fully yet why uh, people find it difficult to gain access in a practical way to culture as a strategic lever, Uh, but... Again, that's certainly what we tried to do in the book is make it much more practical and much more accessible so that you don't have to wait until the next crisis.
0: It is ironic, Malachi, that in businesses where oftentimes the focus is on practical realities and metrics and hard-nosed economics, that where all of those factors come into it, that when it gets to this subject of culture, as you said at the outset, there's this mystery about it that everyone wants to talk about.
1: It's true, and, I, and that's where the part that we don't fully understand yet because, you know, we imagine we go to work for rational reasons because we want to get tasks accomplished and be productive, right? However, we know also at work that there are all sorts of other dynamics going on, whether they're political or identity-based or um, whether they're even, um, you know, uh, dynamics of interpersonal and group interaction that are not rational. They're not, you know, the same as uh, just doing things for a straightforward way where you and I agree we're going to do it and we get it done. There are all sorts of other forces at play. And I think there's there's another layer of culture that, that, that gets at those about the the need to um, understand each group in the organization and their interests, because one of the things we try to talk about in the book is the shift from tightly coupled to loosely coupled organizations, and we imagine that when we look at a business, you know, it makes widgets, it makes iPhones, whatever it may do. And everybody's working in that direction to make the best possible product, increase shareholder value, et cetera. But along the way, once you get inside, there are lots of groups competing, and they don't all have the same objectives. And if we don't understand the interests of each of those groups and their identities – And be able to figure out how to negotiate across them in order to create a larger set of common interests, then that becomes a problem. Uh, and in a time when very few leaders would say, I can just tell everybody what to do and they'll do it, uh, as things become more loosely coupled, those kind of, that ability to negotiate across different interests and objectives becomes critical in order to be able to lead leaders. uh, which is what we believe leaders are faced with now because it's much more like leading a volunteer workforce uh, than it it is uh, uh, a corporation filled with uh, company men from the 50s or 60s. Right.
0: And Barry, does it make a difference? And do we learn anything more about this, about what Malachi was talking about, by looking to see how this plays out perhaps differently differently in different sectors, in technology versus retail versus manufacturing, etc.
2: Yeah, no, that's a great, a great insight, and and one of the the nice things about our work is that we get to work across a number of different sectors and and bring our experience from healthcare into into the business world or from higher ed, uh, you know, into the world of family businesses, etc. And uh, and that comparative perspective can be helpful. You know, I think to tag on to to you know what Mal was saying. There's a there's another sort of nice saying uh, out there that, that says that that the soft stuff is often the hard stuff, and uh, and this kind of sort of human behavior, um, looking at groups, understanding how groups within an organization works. These are these are not easy issues, and and they they can be very fate making in organizations. Um, you know, a lot of executives we talk to, they've been trained uh, either through business school or or through their their experience. Uh, to deal with the uh, the hard business issues, you know the the numbers, the you know the uh, uh, making sure the trains run on time, all of that stuff. But when it comes to the human issues, they don't necessarily have the training uh, um, to do that, and the models of leadership that they've been taught uh, traditionally to draw on, which are more the kind of old command and control. Let's you know be a commanding figure. Let's lead the organization forward. I have to be right. I have to you know be forced. Etc., those might not be the right behaviors in all situations. And as this new world of work is emerging, which is much more collaborative, which sort of forces people to work across different organizational boundaries, um, uh, there are a different set of skills that we find are, are more necessary and less familiar. Uh, to the executives who might be in these leadership roles. And those skills, and this is where we try to sort of locate culture in a kind of very uh, tangible uh, way to look at kind of behaviors, particularly around leadership, those might be listening more. They might be allowing somebody else to speak. They might be accepting when you haven't done something right, embracing failure, being willing to learn, all those things that are, kind of the human behavioral elements of of sort of understanding and leading an organization are less familiar behaviors for a lot of business people. Um, and And people in other sectors as well, so so being able to sort of see how leadership can work in different ways is one of the ways to help organizations move forward.
0: How important is it, Malachi, beyond aligning the culture and the mission and some of these other things we 've been talking about, how important is it to kind of see the future to really try and understand? what the future of that organization and or its product might look like. How important is that in the overall equation?
1: We think it's very important. It's, it's interesting because the challenges that leaders face in organizations in the 21st century uh, isn't different in some ways from prior times. It's more that there have been additional skills and competencies that need to be added. So we don't think there's any substitute for looking out ahead and creating an understanding and a vision of the future in a kind of here's where we are now and here's where we need to move toward directionally, as most strategic planning work does. What we think, though, is that it's not enough to have that and create that vision with, say, a top team. The really critical issue is, Can everybody layers down through the organization understand how their part connects to the whole, how their work uh, uh, connects to the purpose and the strategic direction of the organization? So that's an additional set of tasks for leaders to work with others to tap into their interests in ways that connect their parts of the organization and the work they do and the people they are to the uh, overall vision and engage them in uh, bringing real shape to it. Because in most cases, uh, a strategic plan or a set of strategic commitments, uh, most leaders would say, look, I've got the general direction, but if we already knew how to do this, we'd, we would have done it already. And so it's really the uh, everyone else in the organization that has to understand, embrace, and execute it. and a vision without that is usually uh, just a, a failure uh, that happens in a pretty short amount of time.
2: Jeff, uh, you know, this is where the the power of, of culture comes back, because uh, Mal and I are trained as anthropologists and folklorists to sort of look at narrative, to look at stories, to look at rituals, and those can be very powerful. And if you think about strategy as as a storytelling process, being able to tell a story about future success, and as Mal said, to share that across the organization, that's an important uh, kind of cultural um, capability uh, that really helps organizations be aligned and be energized to move to that future.
0: And what additional pressure does it create, finally, on leaders today, and how does it change the role of leadership within organizations? Barry, you first.
2: Yeah so it's a, it's a great uh uh question because we do think that the models of leadership are changing and uh and and it's not easy <laughs> for leaders to to make that that change but uh, across industries uh the need to be more collaborative to work with others in different ways to work with others outside your organization i mean we see this in healthcare all the time where doctors who you know have, have traditionally been the kind of captain of of the ship now have to work in teams in different ways, um, and to see themselves uh, collaborating with nurses and nurse practitioners and and others. In um, uh, in this happens in all industries. So that ability um, to to lead in a different way, to not always uh, be pushing people, because we know that that pushing people doesn't really motivate them anyway. <laughs> that in fact uh, the best way to motivate today's sort of professionals who are you know. Uh, knowledge workers, for in, in many cases, who have their own motivations, is to tap into their own passions um, and to motivate them by engaging them, by giving them the ability to make decisions themselves, to be creative, to take chances, and not just tell them what to do. And again, that's a different, a different way to think of leadership. Malachi, I think that
0: it is more
1: difficult today for many leaders because. Uh, leaders are being asked to use their authority to take a different kind of risk. In addition to uh, putting the organization at risk through uh, key decisions that are, are made in order to enact those decisions throughout the organization, there's a different kind of risk that leaders need to take. And that's one that exposes myself or oneself. Mm-hmm. And in that case, most leaders we know who are worth their salt, and there are many, would, would say, boy, it's different. I, I could fail. I could get up right now, and I could completely lose people instead of engage them, even though that's my intention. It's not only could I make, be making an incorrect decision, it's, uh, it's really how do I take the risk to transform myself if I'm asking others to transform themselves, because every person will see it in a flash if that's not true. So I think it's a different kind of risk, and it's an exciting kind of risk, uh, but it takes skill and and competence to to do it
0: well. Malachi O'Connor, Barry Dornfeld, the book is the moment you can't ignore. When big trouble leads to a great future, it's just out from Public Affairs Books. Barry, Malachi, thank you so much for spending time with us today.
2: Thanks, Jeff. It's a great, great conversation.
1: Thank you. We'll yeah, ta- and those were terrific questions. We really appreciate it because, you know, in a good interview, we learn as much as, uh, as anyone else. So thank you for that.
0: Well, thank you. We'll take a break.
1: I'll be right back.